You're listening to Design Tomorrow. You're listening to Design Tomorrow. I'm Chris Butler, and I've been thinking about cause and effect, about how sometimes the things we don't do are more impactful than the things we do. That's easy to understand when we're talking about big things, big things done and not done. But I think it's just as important an idea when applied to little things, even our own thinking, to pay attention to the role of things thought and not thought on how we experience the world and act within it. On this episode of Design Tomorrow, I want to talk about not only identifying the negative space in our thoughts and actions, but something I call active erasure, and how being intentional about the act of taking things out can not only improve the work we do, but change its very nature. Design Tomorrow is a podcast about design, technology, and being human, which, admittedly, is a lot to be about. But in all things, we hope to grow in our awareness that what we do and think today can create a better tomorrow. You can follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Design Tomorrow. Just leave all the vowels out. So that's at D-S-G-N-T-M-R-R-W. You can also visit the show's website at designtomorrow.co. And if you want to get in touch directly, you can email me at chris at designtomorrow.co. I'd love to hear from you. And now, let's get back to the show. My favorite professor at art school was a man named Alfred de Credico. Now, Al was a polarizing figure, to say the least. Students would beg to be placed in his classes, and they would beg not to be. But Al was a great man. He understood so much about the creative process, mostly, I believe, because he understood how predictably we think our way through making things and how that thinking almost always gets in the way of our best output. Al used to begin his fall semester foundation year drawing course with a strange assignment, to make a drawing in the shower. He'd deliver this assignment after reading aloud a short essay about drawing by the critic Donald Cuspit. But communication exists in name only, for the materially abstracted work is addressed to no one in particular, and those who find themselves addressed by it are neither transformed by nor have any transformative effect on it. Their consciousness of it does not help constitute it, nor does their consciousness of the modernist, or as I would say, presentist work of work, significantly constitute them. Literalness, that is the literal order of effects, as Greenberg says, by its very presentist nature, precludes the idea of constitutive consciousness as well as of its correlate transformative communication. Yikes. Cuspit is dense. I think 40 seconds is enough. But Al loved this essay 
so much, in fact, that there were always copies of it tucked somewhere, usually between student drawings that he collected in this enormous steel flat file cabinet that sat in the corner of the studio. Now, this would be day one, moment one, really. A couple of dozen freshmen would have just gathered in this big open room in an old mill building carrying among their standard-issue person-sized black leather portfolios, extra-large pads of newsprint, and boxes of charcoal, carrying their expectations for what it meant to be at art school, for what it meant to study under a real artist. And then in he'd stroll, looking like a man who'd just slept on the street. Let's just say that Al had a unique sense of personal style. And without even looking up, he'd unfold a worn copy of that essay, and start reading. When he was done, he'd fold it back up again and put it in his pocket, and finally, finally looking up at the crowd gathered in that room, he'd say, I want you to go make a drawing in the shower. And that would be it. Day one of a weekly drawing studio meant to last eight hours over in about ten minutes. This catalyzed a predictable division of those students who immediately adored Al from those outraged by his negligence. Where were the nude models? Where were the circle of easels? The rigor? What did we buy all this charcoal for? His fans, on the other hand, they couldn't imagine anything more art school than the freedom to interpret an ambiguous assignment. Now, either way, a couple of dozen confused 18-year-olds would file out of the room most too timid to even ask for clarification. When the last one was out and the door shut behind them, an impish grin would cross Al's face, and when he saw that you noticed it, his mouth would open wide to accommodate an eruption of laughter. He loved this performance. The next week, the students would return with their drawings. They'd pin them up on the walls, anticipating some sort of critique, but they wouldn't get it. The first thing Al had them do was take their drawings down, cut them in half, exchange one half with another student, and then tape the two together. Now, of course, there was tons of outrage over this. He was asking them to destroy their art. For some students, though, this would be a blessing in disguise because there was always at least one kid who just didn't get it, who made a drawing of a shower, not in one and a critique would have just exposed their misunderstanding. So instead of embarrassment, they got angst. They'd spend the next hour reluctantly making new drawings. Then he'd stop them, and he'd make them do this all over again, cut in half the other way, exchange, outrage, reluctant making, repeat. After about four cycles of this, Al would finally declare it over. The students would all look at him, desperate at this point for some kind of explanation. He'd look around and say, A good drawing isn't made by what you put in it, but by what you take out. Now, Al didn't talk much to his students, especially early on in the semester, but when he did, what was said was always memorable. A good drawing isn't made by what you put in it, but by what you take out. Al had designed this lesson to stop students from making art, to arrest their egos and loosen their grip on the drawing process and let, as he would say, drawings become what they want to be. Now, for some students, that sounded like new-age mumbo-jumbo and always would. 
They came for a classical education, and Al was offering anything but. But for others, they were all in. I remember that moment, and honestly, I was somewhere in between. But by the end of the semester, I had begun to experience what he was talking about. It took weeks for me to let my guard down, to just let go and not make something that I'd already seen in my mind, to freely make marks and messes. Because the real drawing took shape when I began to notice things in that mess, began to arrange them, and most importantly, began to take things out. When Al talked about good drawings being made by what you take out, he wasn't just making an argument for restraint. He was talking about active erasure. Active erasure might sound like just another way of saying editing, but it's more than that. Though a piece of writing is almost always made better by taking things out, it's not typically the case that meaning for the reader is shaped as much by the words that are not there than the words that are. In a visual context, taking something out creates negative space, something your brain perceives in the same way it does things with form. And so erasing is just as much an act of drawing as making a mark with a pencil. Recently, I was reading an essay by Jenny O'Dell called How to Grow an Idea, and something she wrote immediately took me back to Al's classroom. She was writing about the role of things other than our active attention over our thinking, and specifically about how these things wield much greater influence over our thoughts and perceptions and ideas than we might imagine. Here's Odell. Intelligence and thought are things to be found both in and around the self. Studies in cognitive science have suggested that we do not encounter the environment as a static thing, nor are we static ourselves. As Francisco Varela, Evan Thompson, and Eleanor Roche put it in The Embodied Mind, cognition is not the representation of a pre-given world by a pre-given mind, but is rather the enactment of a world and a mind. Throughout the book, the authors build a model of cognition in which mind and environment are not separate, but rather co-produced from the very point at which they meet. End quote. Jenny O'Dell's essay reminded me that making a drawing in the shower wasn't something Al devised simply to challenge incoming art students' assumptions about what art making looks like. Instead, it acknowledged the role that non-local forces have on our thinking and created a situation in which young students, already overloaded with preconceived ideas about what art is and what it means to make it, that they would be more able to truly discover something about drawing and begin thinking differently. Perhaps there's a simpler way to think about the relationship between mind and environment, or at least one a bit easier to integrate into our own thinking and experience right now. Perhaps we need to enlarge our mental model of our own minds. The mind is so active and so complex that its background processes, physiological sensory input like sights, sounds, Smells, textures, and tastes are individually so much finer and in the aggregate so much grander than our own conscious thought that perhaps any thought we think is actually their output, not ours in the conscious sense. In other words, thinking as an effect, not a cause. 
Here's Odell again. Ideas are intersections between ourselves and something else. Like consciousness itself, ideas are emergent properties, and thinking might be more participation than it is production. End quote. Alfred de Credico certainly wasn't the first teacher to create assignments that radically pushed students into conscious collaboration with outside forces. In music conservatories, learning to hear is just as important as learning to play an instrument or sing. And musicians who thrive in improvisational contexts, they learn to allow their intentions to be shaped more by outside forces than internal ones. There are surely analogs to this in many other contexts, but I bet it's far easier to understand this idea and apply it in an arts context than elsewhere. Think of your work now, whatever it may be. What would it mean to let go of it? What would it mean to erase something you've done in order to create space for something that comes from someone or someplace else? But more importantly, if this is how our brains work at their subconscious levels, what does it mean that we instinctually resist it when it comes to our own conscious thought and choices? What might we unlock in reality if we could build the habit of seeking participation rather than production? It's something to think about. Or maybe it's something to not think about. Well, friends, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Design Tomorrow. If you did, find the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give it a rating and a review. You telling the world that you're a fan is my best bet for growing this audience. Help me spread the word. Tell a friend that even though we may have reached peak podcast, there's still room for a little one about design, technology, and being human among their subscriptions because this one is a little different, and maybe it will speak to them. Meanwhile, I'd love to hear your feedback. What's working about this show and what's not? Email me at chris at designtomorrow.co or tweet me at designtomorrow. Again, that's at D-S-G-N-T-M-R-R-W. If I don't hear from you, thanks for listening. And remember, what we do and think today, and even what we don't do and don't think, can create a better tomorrow. See you then. Welcome to the super secret and oddly translated into spoken word links section. Thanks for hanging around. Now, if you're new to the show, I'm going to read a bunch of links. And if you want to click them, you can find them in the show notes below the player. Here we go. Number one, more than half your body isn't human. Number two, researchers at MIT have made a wearable device that can hear the thoughts in your head. Number three, We probably don't finally understand how acupuncture works, but we might be a bit closer. Check out a piece in the cut all about that. Number four, Jared Spool nailed it when he said that there's no magic in design thinking. You can read his piece about that on Medium. And finally, number five, 
Here's a great quote from Dave Weiner. The web is like the ocean. Once it's full of plastic and the coral reefs are dead, will it make a difference that Google did that to it? That's it. Until next time, friends.